Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries, but I promise all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we have another fabulous listener suggestion. And I absolutely love this one because all they said was just do a story in Europe. So guess what? It's a story in Europe. In fact, we're on our way to Finland, my darlings. So with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours. So choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say Gustafson, that will be a single shot. And every time I say, and I promise you, you're going to love it because I absolutely loved it and had to do it. But every time I say Aspen. (laughs) That's going to be a double shot. Yes, I know. Hilarious, right? Anyways, now that the business end is out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So, don your warmest Arctic wear, grab your hockey gear, and beware of the reindeer as we head to beautiful Finland. And today's story, The Lake Bottom Murders, a mysterious mystery if ever there was one. All right. On a warm summer night in 1960, on the shores of a tranquil lake in Finland, a group of teenagers were brutally murdered by an unknown assailant, and the case has remained unsolved to 
to this day. They were hacked to death while they slept in their tent. In an attack so frenzied and horrifying, it is said to have inspired the infamous Friday the 13th movies. So join me as we explore this unsolved case and delve into the mysteries that surround the slaughter at Lake Bottom. Lake Bottom is a little over 12 miles from the Finnish capital of Helsinki, near the town of Ispu. And on the night of June 4, 1960, it's where two teenage couples, Niels Gustafsson, 18, Irmili Jorkland, 15, Seppo Boisman, 18, and Tuliki Maki, 15, set up tents to camp out and enjoy the pristine wilderness. It was just a year since the murders that had happened in the nearby Tuluhati camping area, so the parents of the two girls weren't exactly thrilled to let their daughters go on this trip, but at the very last minute decided to go ahead and let them go. They rode their motorcycles to the Lakes Bay and set up camp. They then pitched their tent near the local beach, where they spent the rest of the evening drinking, talking, and barbecuing before retiring for the night somewhere around midnight. The boys were woken up a few hours after falling asleep and decided to go fishing for a short while before returning to sleep. But somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., the teenagers were attacked. Now, little is known as to what happened next, but on June the 5th, early in that morning, someone attacked these four youngsters, hitting them in their heads with something heavy and blunt. Boysman and Jorkland were also stabbed. In fact, Jorkland was over 15 times. The murderer stabbed them through the very tent fabric. The primary cause of death for Boysman, Jorklin, and Maki was skull fracture. Niels Gustafsson was able to flee from inside the tent, but the killer hit him on the head, possibly with a rock. He was the only one to survive the attack, but he also had multiple fractures on his skull as well. And Gustafsson was found lying on top of the collapsed tent, and he spent weeks in the hospital before making a recovery. But on Sunday morning, a man swimming with his son came across the victim's bodies at around 11 a.m. He described how the collapsed tent caught his eye, and he was able to see the victims. Boisman was discovered lying on his back. He had died as a result of hemorrhage caused by a puncture wound to his right lung. According to the autopsy reports, the assaults were directed at Boisman's head and neck areas. The following factors all played a role a skull fracture caused by external violence, a cerebral contusion, a puncture wound to the trachea, and the subsequent inhalation of blood. According to the studies, the injuries may have been caused by an edged weapon such as a regular knife, and the head injuries may have been caused by a flat-surfaced heavy object, maybe a stone. Maki was discovered lying on her right side on the tent's roof on her right side. According to the autopsy reports, Maki's head area had been subjected to blunt external violence from behind. 
Her primary cause of death was a fracture of the skull caused by a cerebral contusion, which was the primary contributing factor. She was not stabbed in the back. Gustafson, the lone survivor, was discovered lying on top of the tent, seriously injured, and was immediately taken to the hospital. It was determined that he himself had suffered blunt force trauma to his face. He had a fractured jaw and facial bones, as well as a deep wound on the inside of his cheek, and he was in critical condition. He was immediately taken to a hospital as the police began an investigation as to what happened. The police were quickly on the scene, and during the same day, they were able to conduct multiple stop checks and the biggest ever terrain exploration around the area. During this exploration, the police were able to find 88 wanted people, but were unable to find the killer. That speaks volumes, guys. The investigation began at approximately noon, so they didn't waste any time getting started. After investigating, the police discovered that the murderer had cut the tent ropes and then attacked the victims from outside the tent with sharp and blunt objects, according to their investigation. Even though the murder weapons were not left behind and nothing was ever discovered despite an extensive investigation. As well as stealing the teenager's personal belongings, including Boisman's wallet and shirt, the assailant also stole Maki's wallet, towel, swimsuit, and pliers, as well as Gustafson's wallet, tote, wristwatch, and a pair of pliers. Why they stole the pliers, I don't know. And approximately a half a kilometer away from the crime scene, the shoes of Boisman and Gustafson were discovered. Both pairs of shoes were on the opposite side of the road. One was in a hole and the other on the other side of the road. Several tiny droplets of blood were found on Gustafson's shoes, and the bloodstain pattern analysis revealed that the shoes had actually been worn at the time of the attack. Gustafson stated that he had no recollection of wearing the shoes, and that he was in no condition after the attacks to be able to move the shoes that far away from where he was. A pillowcase with blood droplets and sperm on it was discovered at the crime scene. It was measured at about 40 to 48 centimeters. Although it was initially assumed to be the girl's sanitary towel, DNA analysis of the pillowcase conducted as part of a 2005 investigation revealed that the DNA actually did belong to a man, and it was neither Gustafson or Boisman. A large number of eyewitness reports came in from people in the surrounding area of the lake. And by the end of July, there were approximately 50 reports of a light man in the area, but no arrests were made. Gustafson, the primary survivor, had been in the hospital for several weeks and had no recollection of what had happened that night. And when no one was apprehended, the authorities finally had to turn to unconventional methods to try and track down the perpetrator. Gustafson was hypnotized somewhere between the 2nd and the 5th of July and he described under hypnosis how he heard the girl screaming and how a man was slashing the kids with a knife and some sort of iron pipe type object through the tent. He describes how he noticed blood on Bjorklund's head and then Gustafson went into great detail about the assailant. The attacker was between the ages of 20 and 30 years old. He was neither young nor old. 
In his account, Gustafson described the perpetrator's clothing as a thick, checkered, dark blouse with small black buttons on the front and back, and that the blouse was buttoned up. The blouse had many different colors, such as black and green, and overlapping breast pockets. But since the hypnosis used in criminal investigation was a relatively new concept in Finland in the 1960s, the hypnosis experiment was disputed and seen more as a form of entertainment than an appropriate part of medicine. But again, that murder weapon was never found. There were eyewitnesses, but what they were able to see was just movement on the shore. The police received over 50 notices of a blonde man to the end of July, but none of those resulted in any arrests. There was a 14-year-old, Olavi Kivalati, who saw a blonde man wearing a light-colored shirt walking past the camp about 50 meters away, but Olavi was nearsighted and he wasn't wearing any glasses, so they questioned his sighting. But Olavi was also hypnotized a few times, and during the hypnosis, both him and Gustafson described the suspect, and drawings were done based on the descriptions, but it still didn't lead to anything. Olavi had noticed an unknown man hurrying towards the Vesto construction site around 6 a.m. He'd called 911 after seeing the man. Mr. Kivilati was unsure of the man's origins and wondered where he had come from but he did manage to catch a glimpse of this mysterious figure. And he explained, it was approximately 20 to 30 years old, roughly 170 to 180 centimeters in height, regular build, straight-backed, light brown hair, combed back, and dressed in dark trousers and a light jacket. The man stood out from the crowd, and he wasn't sure what to make of the shoes that the man was wearing. When he was hypnotized on the 31st of January in 1966, he also described the man as having the same features as him and wearing black shoes. Then we had Ali Karjalian, the wife of the Otai Manor's caretaker, and she recalled how she went to the Manor's Bank at 3.45 a.m. to wash some laundry before going to work the following day. She had observed a young man fishing in the bay where the victims were located, roughly about 400 meters away. Later, she noticed two young boys fishing on the west side of the bay, which she took note of. The other youngster had run away, leaving the other two alone in the room with him. Mrs. Karjelian stated that she didn't notice anyone else at the location other than herself. But the description she gave for this killer was... And you guessed it, aged around 20 to 30 years old, not young, not old, height about 5 foot 8, normal body type, maybe a little heavier than Gustafson, round face, red cheeks, long blonde hair combed back, normal ears with round earlobes, high wrinkled forehead, big eyes, unknown color, straight nose, not long, not short, normal light eyebrows, bold lips, strong jaw, short neck, white teeth, and wasn't sure if some had been missing, but big and thick fingers. Special characteristics she saw were pimples on his forehead and cheeks. Clothing was a plaid shirt with black buttons, buttoned all the way up, shirt containing many colors, at least black and green. So there seems to be a consensus of what this guy looked like. 
It was particularly highlighted by medical superintendent Hanu Lerma, who stated that hypnosis, hypnosis is not a lie detector and that the person under hypnosis does not always provide truthful information because they are in a dreamlike state. The person under hypnosis can create their own mental images. For example, in Gustafson's case, because he couldn't recall much from the previous night, he might choose to fill in the blanks with a mental image that he created himself. But at first, the police were searching for a man that had been spotted in the area carrying a bag that belonged to one of the victims. He had a black beard and he was walking with a bicycle. He had also been spotted coming out of the forest wearing a bloody shirt. His name was Pauli Kusta Loma. He was a runaway from a labor camp who had an alibi for the night. He'd been in Otinimi, Espoo, during the murders. Otinimi is about 11 miles away from the lake, and it's a good 23-minute trip one way. All four people in the area at the time of the murder were taken into custody and interrogated. They were at the south beach of the lake around 5.30 a.m., they were Heike Salonen, 16, and Kalevi Hapalanian, who was 15. Before 6 a.m., both witnesses stated that they heard noises that they believed in having been cries for help from the scene. One of the main reasons they were there was to ring the bells of the birds. According to them, they had been about 20 meters away from the tent when they witnessed the motorcycles leaning against the tree and a man lying on top of the collapsed tent. The only thing they could say about the man was that he wore dark trousers and that was all they saw. Soon after, they noticed another man walking away from the tent and the bird watchers were able to describe how the unknown man walked towards the east beach where they had been camping. After that, they didn't see any more movement and decided to leave so that they wouldn't bother the other campers any longer. By the end of 1960, 24-year-old Pinti Sononen confessed while in Kyopio prison that he had actually murdered the youngsters. During the murders, he was 15, and it was true that he had been near the lake during the murders because he had run away from an approved school. The police interrogated him, but they did not give much weight to his confession. So Sonian was described as a psychopath who could act in a very peculiar ways, especially under the influence of drugs and alcohol. He had a long list of crimes under his name, thefts, assaults, and robberies. But Sonian committed suicide by hanging in Trojla train station while he was being transferred to a prison in 1969. So we'll never know if he did it. Then there was a Carl Valdemar Gilstrom. He was a suspect for a very long time. He was known to hate the campers and he often acted aggressively. His nickname was Kiosk Man because he apparently had a kiosk. And they're not real good with names. Anyways. He drowned himself in Lake Bottom in 1969 and people said he confessed murdering the youngsters before this happened. His neighbor told that he had said that it was me who killed them. Gilstrom had apparently filled and closed his well on his yard a couple of days after the murders that led to his house and yard being carefully searched. However, nothing was found, though it is possible all the stolen belongings had just been discard discarded. Gilstrom's son-in-law had been told to be certain that the murder weapon lies at the bottom of the closed and filled well. But according to the police, Gilstrom had an alibi for that night, an alibi that had been confirmed by Gilstrom's wife. 
His wife had told that she had been up all night, and according to her, Gilstrom hadn't left the house. However, shortly before the wife died, she told that Gilstrom had threatened to kill her if she ever told the truth. Then there was one of the most well-known suspects, and this was German-born Hans Ossmann. That's right, and it's spelled A-S-S-M-A-N, so I'm going to just call him Ossmann. That's because it's funny. So Hans Ossmann, who has also been a, who has also been suspected of being a KGB spy, but on the sixth of June in 1960, Ossmann was brought to Helsinki Surgical Hospital, where he acted in a very peculiar way. People in the hospital noticed how unkempt Ossmann was. His fingernails were very dirty, and his clothes were full of red stains. Ossmann lied to the hospital staff that the reason for his condition, but he told the truth about his way of living. He did say that he lived about three miles away from the lake. He also pretended being unconscious, and he was very aggressive and nervous. But Asman's description reminded a lot of the description of the suspect. When the news informed the characteristics of the suspects, Asman cut his hair really short, so he didn't look like that anymore. But Jorma Paulo, who at the time worked at the hospital as an amanuensis, and by the way, I had to look that up. It's basically somebody who writes down everything that happens. So he's basically a writer. Was very certain that Asman was the killer because if you're named Asman, you're a killer. That's just rules. Sorry. Many people from the hospital staff also agreed with Paolo. The police met with Asman very briefly, and they did not want to discuss what the with the hospital staff what was said. They also didn't take Asman's stained clothes in for inspection. Paolo later wrote three books about the murders and about Asman. Former detective inspector Mari Palario connected Asman to five other murders as well, among them the murder of Kaliki Sadi and even the death of Minister Pena Turvo. Asman was a perfect match for the description given by Gustafson and Olavi. However, according to the police, Asman had a perfect alibi. And it wasn't revealed to the public at that time because it was of a very sensitive nature. But the documents about Asman finally became public in 2005. And according to them, Asman had been with his girlfriend that night. She lived in as a subtenant and her landlord and landlady both saw Asman sitting eating breakfast in the morning. The documents verified that the, the then 36-year-old Asman had spent the night in the apartment located in Helsinki during the murders. Asman had had this affair going on for years, but he was married. So that's why they didn't let anybody know what it was. But Asman slept in the same bed with his 33-year-old girlfriend, and the bedroom door had been open for the entire night, and no one noticed Asman leaving at any point during that night, because apparently if he, if he would have left, it would have been noticed. I don't know about you, but if I'm cheating on my, on my spouse, I'm closing the door. I, I just, I find that suspect, but anyways. Anyways, Asman woke up at 9 a.m., and at the time, at that time, the murders had already been committed and the first passerbys had noticed the collapsed tent. According to the police, the red stains on Asman clothing were actually paint that he had used while at work. Jarma Paolo was the one who suspected Asman of being a KGB agent and that he was being protected, but, but the police say that Paolo's books are basically just pure fiction. The two young men ho who were fishing on the lake during the murders were never identified, and they never came forward to the police, even though it was asked multiple times. 
What was weird is that the two men left the fish that they caught behind, and nothing else is known of them. And I have a theory right there, and I'm just going to kind of insert my own little ideas there. I think the two kids that were fishing either knew the person who committed the murder, or they ran into the murderer and thought they were going to get murdered themselves. That would explain why they wouldn't come forward and why they left everything behind. I'm just saying. Then, 44 years after the murders, in 2004, the lone survivor, Niels Gustafsson, was suddenly arrested as a suspect. The blood samples gathered from the tent supported Gustafsson being the perpetrator. The police also informed that DNA technology revealed things that couldn't be found back in the 1960s. However, during the trial, nothing significant was uncovered from these samples. Gustafson has been saying he doesn't remember anything about the murders since day one, and his story has never changed. In fact, he thinks he got brain damage from the attack, and that resulted in amnesia. I'm going to say that I'm not sure that I agree with him there. I don't know if it's brain damage. I think his brain is actually protecting him and has locked those memories away. Because he was hypnotized and he was able to remember when he was hypnotized. And I think because he was in a safe state, it, his brain let him see those and he didn't have to remember it. Does that make sense? I know you guys are with me because you guys are awesome. Anyways, during the trial, an important point was to find out whether the blows to his head were strong enough to result in amnesia. The prosecutors tried strongly to belittle the injuries that Gustafson suffered, and they were claiming that he exaggerated them. According to the prosecutors, Gustafson and Seppa Boisman had been drinking on the night of the murders and then started to have an argument. The prosecutors also claimed that Miley Borkland had turned down Gustafson's sexual advances and that this led to Gustafson losing his temper. The claim is supported by the stabbing wounds on Bjorklund's body. According to the coroner, she was stabbed more than 15 times. The district court excluded all the charges on the 7th of October in 2005. According to it, nothing proved that Gustafson murdered his friends. They disqualified the jealousy claims too. They excluded everything because the eyewitness sightings were pointing to an, outside, an outsider perpetrator. But the investigation and trial got a lot of attention, and Gustafson was finally freed in 2005. Gustafson gave one very rare press conference. During it, journalists were very aggressive with their approach and pointed out the illogical things in, in some of the things that he had said. Like, it was weird he claimed he didn't remember anything, but at the same time, he remembered that he, for sure, wasn't the one that murdered his friends. I'm just going to stop for a second there and go, you know what? If I know who I am as a person, even if I lose my memory and I don't remember anything, I'm pretty sure that I haven't killed anybody. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I think you know yourself well enough to know if you have the capability of killing somebody. And I think that that's kind of what Gustafson was saying is that, you know what, I, I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not that person. Anyways, Gustafson didn't explain himself further. In fact, he stated, I'm innocent and that's that. The National Bureau of Investigation had an investigator who testified something very interesting, though. He claimed that after Gustafson had been arrested, he had said, What is done is done. I got 15 years, which was seen to be some sort of a confession. This testimony wasn't leaked immediately, though. It only came to surface during the trial. 
Gustafson himself said he doesn't remember saying anything like that, and if he did, it was simply a joke. Morbid, but it's a joke. You know, the Finnish are not really known for their sense of humor, I'm just saying. Although I've got a lot of, I, I got a couple of Finnish friends, and you know what? They're very funny, I'm just going to say. Anyways, the district court stated that it wasn't investigated properly. They also said the fact that the saying did not lead to any action points to the fact that even if Gustafson would have said it, it wasn't a confession. And even the investigator who heard it in the first place didn't think that way either at that time. So it was clear that that's not what was going on. I think they were just trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. Anyways, this was insufficient evidence to convict him because the statement was not entered into the pretrial investigation record. And because the context and content of the statement were not confirmed by the prosecution. And of course, on October the 7th, 2005, Mr. Gustafson was found not guilty of all charges against him. According to the district court, the motive of jealousy did not constitute sufficient evidence. During the 1960s, only a partial DNA examination could rule out an outsider as a possible per- perpetrator of the attacks, as the entire tent had not been thoroughly examined at that time. Mr. Gustafson could not have hid his shoes because of his injuries, and they were discovered much closer to the tent. In addition, a witness had observed an unidentified individual leaving the crime scene, which was later confirmed. In fact, the state of Finland compensated Mr. Gustafsson for his mental anguish with the sum of 44,900 euros. Anybody want to do the math on that real quick? Okay, I don't know how much it is, but it's enough. Anyways, the Lake Bottom murders are one of the most well-known murder mysteries in Finland, and the perpetrator's identity has remained a mystery to this very day. And it's believed by many Finns that they will just never be solved. And I will tell you this, in investigating and researching for my story, every time I tried to get a description of Lake Bottom, the only thing that I would get is this story about the murders. And that's just sad because it is a beautiful area. Anyways, if you get a chance, check it out. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of the episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think about today's story. As always, you can reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, darlings, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.